Welcome to the Idolcast. Hit it! Today is Bolero, performed live at Tokyo Dome on July 5th, 2009. The concert was the final date of the Secret Code Tour, supporting the group's fourth album in Japan. They played 21 performances across 11 venues from May to July of that year. Bolero, an incredibly powerful ballad, was one of the encore songs, and I still get goosebumps. first trip to Japan in 2014, I happened to pick up a book written by music critic Ichikawa Tetsushi called Daremo Oshiete Kurenakatta Honto no Papa Music Ron, which translates to something like The Truth You Weren't Told About Pop Music. Well, the book has a big section on Tohoshinki, aka TVXQ, aka DBSK, aka Dongbang Shinki, aka the subject of this series of episodes. One of the things Mr. Ichikawa says is that until he attended a Tohoshinki concert, he hadn't really understood the emotional power of their ballads. He was shocked 
to find that the ladies seated around him were in tears for most of the concert. It was this combination of pure emotional catharsis combined with their swooping harmonies that was such a powerful draw for the fans, at least for Big East, the Japanese fans. And it does point to something big. When Korean and global K-pop fans, generally, Cassiopeia, think of TVXQ's music, what they think of is likely either the frenetic energy of a rising sun, or the sultry morotic. The latter of which was the TVXQ song selected by Rolling Stone in 2023 to represent the group. Well, the Japanese fans, Big East, are much, much more likely to name something like the touching ballad divide between TVXQ and Toho Shingi is real. Me, personally? I'd pick Bolero. But 2009 is still a few years out from where we left off in our story of the rise and fall and rebirth of TVXQ. If you haven't listened to part one or part two, I suggest catching up on those first. But the TLDR is that TVXQ debuted in 2004 in the middle of a downturn for both SM Entertainment and the Korean music industry more generally, with BOA being one of the few shining lights of both. Except that BOA was really a product of Japan's AVEX Group, a former Japanese dance music label turned pan-Asian pop music behemoth. Back in Korea, Isuman and SM, hoping to recapture the glory days of super teen idol boy group HOT, especially in China, put together a new group of elite trainees called Dongbang Shinki, whose selling point was that they were idols who could actually sing. And then after some success with domestic teen audiences, TVXQ were shipped off to Japan instead of China, in part because Japan was still buying albums, but also the Hallyu wave in the form of Bayong Jun, aka Yon Sama, had just crashed up on the shore there. TVXQ Toho Shinki in Japan have a hard time of it at first, but their luck starts to change late in the summer of 2005 when AVEX buys a large share of SM Entertainment, and both TVXQ's music and image improve drastically in quality, and they start really gaining fans. Oh yeah. And Jaejung has just suffered a major stress injury to his knee. So, as I mentioned in the previous episodes, there had been a real push in the late 90s into the mid-2000s from both domestic record companies and multinationals to find acts that would play well across Asia, and possibly 
even break into the West. Japan had acts like Utada Hikaru, a singer-songwriter who grew up in America and spoke English. Korea had Boa, and Taiwan had gifted the world the legendary boy group known as F4. One reason for this push is something I'd mentioned in the last episodes. Record sales were declining across the region, and a big reason for that was piracy, which was such a huge problem in Korea and China that both countries were named as piracy hubs by the U.S. government. So despite Isuman's obsession with the massive Chinese market, and consequently SM Entertainment's fascination with that Chinese market, for a company looking to get on a steadier financial footing, Japan just makes more sense as a target. An article from the October 21st, 2004 issue of Hankyore magazine even quoted Isuman as saying that when he entered the Chinese market in 1998, he didn't expect to earn a profit for at least 10 years. And that was before the bottom fell out of the CD market. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. In the last episode, I introduced the popular R&B vocal group SG Wannabe who debuted at the same time as TVXQ. According to the Recording Industry Association of Korea, SG Wannabe had the best-selling album of 2005, with 414,855 copies sold. In 2007, SG Wannabe, again, had the number one album in Korea, but this time, they only sold 190,998 copies. Less than a decade out from the million sellers of HOT, and the entire market in Korea has changed. But in Japan, Orange Range had the best-selling album of 2005, with 2.6 million copies sold. In 2007, it was Mr. Children with 1.2 million copies sold. While there definitely was a decline, it wasn't nearly as steep and that top number of about 1 to 1.5 million for the best-selling album of the year would stay fairly steady even into the 2020s, even as idol acts began to dominate the sales charts in Japan, too. So if you are a music company looking to make money via record sales, especially with an idol group, Japan was, and is, a very good target to aim at. That strong history of piracy and bootleg music sales in Korea I discussed in the previous episode meant that there really wasn't a strong consumer tradition of purchasing official versions of albums, or almost more importantly, purchasing what are called catalog sales or older albums, something that was an important revenue earner for record companies in markets like the United States and Japan. 
So after the internet became a more and more convenient place to find and listen to music, especially after the introduction of devices like the MP3 player and then of streaming audio, the only people in markets like Korea who were still buying albums were the hardcore fans. And albums, idol albums especially, increasingly, began to be more and more targeted to that hardcore demographic with multiple versions for collectors that had different bonus contents included. In other words, albums as merch rather than physical media meant to be played. TVXQ's second Korean album, Rising Sun, released in 2005, which I discussed in the previous episode, had essentially one version in the Korean market. TVXQ's third Korean album, released in 2006, which I will discuss in a few more minutes, had four versions with different content on each one, and quite a few fans could be expected to purchase all four copies. That is a huge leap forward in the quote culture technology of album sales, and other K-pop companies would soon follow SM's example. Telecom companies in Korea had also begun aggressively entering the music market, but while there had been a boom in mobile and online music sales, the bulk of that money went to the telecoms and to the web portals, not to the music companies and certainly not to the musicians and performers. With more and more people turning to music streaming, even things like ringtone sales were doing more business than recorded music. In early 2008, an article from Billboard magazine quotes the CEO from this you know, small, independent company called YG Entertainment, as saying that only 15% of their revenue comes from music sales, whereas three or four years ago, sales had been the majority of revenue. Companies needed to diversify. We saw in the last episode that SM Entertainment had even begun a for-profit training school, and companies had to look for more and more creative revenue streams for their artists. Fan clubs, merchandise, concerts, brand tie-ins, feature films, drama soundtracks, anime soundtracks, and more. But all of this takes a lot of upfront investment, spending money, building up a fan base to hopefully make even more money from those fans that you invested in getting the fans. So for a company like SM that was trying to build up a deeper roster, they needed every penny, every won, every yen, that their 10 pult acts of BOA and TVXQ brought in, minus the cut off the top to uh, Isuman's like planning, naturally. So let's turn to Japan, where, incredibly, people were, and are, still buying CDs, although not as many as they were buying 20 years ago. If you've listened to my history series, then you might remember that 2005 was an incredible year for the boy groups from the talent agency Johnny's and Associates. Their talents were everywhere in 2005. Successful TV dramas, variety shows getting ratings that the Super Bowl would be jealous of today, and, of course, the hit songs. In particular, the duo of Yamashita Tomohisa and Kamenashi Kazuya, both trainees at the time, scored a massive once-in-a-lifetime super hit called Seishun Amigo. Seishun Amigo. 
It was so popular that it not only ranked in as the best-selling song of 2005 in Japan, with almost a million copies sold, but was actually the third best-selling song of 2006. And I guarantee you that anybody alive and conscious in 2005 in Japan could sing a few bars and probably do the choreography for the chorus, too. So who had the best-selling song of 2006? Oh, that would be Johnny's and Associates group Katun, newly debuted with Seishun Amigo hitmaker Kamenashi, better known as simply Kame, as one of their two lead singers. The hype and hysteria around Katun was so big that they had their debut concert in Tokyo Dome. Now, take a moment and imagine how popular a group has to be for them to debut in a venue like Tokyo Dome, which artists, you know, work their whole careers to try and and play a concert at. So this was the boy group competition TVXQ was up against in Japan, trying to make a dent in the market. And it was not easy. But luckily, they had Avex on their side, as well as the residual push of Hallyu and the middle-aged ladies suffering from Yonsama Fiba. Avex has a lackluster reputation with fans today, but in 2006, it was the number two label behind Sony Japan. And by 2008, they were number one, thanks in no small part to the three queens, Amuro Namie, Hamasaki Ayumi, and Koda Kumi. AVEX in 2006, a powerful ally for any J-pop group, especially one hoping to make an impression in a boy group market dominated by Johnny's and Associates. But more important than the CDs, even in Japan, were the lucrative brand deals, drama, anime, movie theme songs, commercial endorsements, fan club membership fees, concert ticket sales, merchandise, and all the other crucial revenue streams that come from being a popular musician. In 2005, the top five most popular male celebrities for brand endorsements were literally the five members of Johnny's and Associates group, SMAP. Literally, the five members just were the top five. And in the top 10 ranking for brand endorsements monetarily, it went like this. Number one, SMAP as a group. Numbers two through four, three of the individual five members of SMAP, with the other two coming in a couple places down after another Johnny's and Associates group, Tokyo, and popular actress, Oeta Aya. Bayang Jun wasn't quite at the SMAP level, but he was in demand. 
and he was proof that there were lucrative brand deals. They were there, they were available for Korean men in Japan. So forget about music show trophies. This is the real playing field that TVXQ needed to compete on for real money, and breaking through was not going to be easy. However, they did have one thing working in their favor. As I mentioned in the last episode, in 2004, housewives across the nation of Japan fell in love with Korean actor Bayeon Jun and his performance in the Korean drama Winter Sonata. TVXQ would the pivot away from bog-standard J-pop teen pop that they debuted with to the tender ballad of their third single, My Destiny, was aiming directly for this extremely lucrative demographic. And it was a smart move. Rather than try to fight for the already captured teen fans of the Johnnies and Associates groups, why not target a completely different demographic? One that had already bought into the fantasy of the romantic Korean man. And spoiler alert, it worked big time. The music critic I mentioned earlier, Mr. Ichikawa, when talking about TVXQ, Tohoshinki, made a point of mentioning that their capturing of this housewife demographic. And you can see them in the audiences of music shows filmed in this era. And the housewife demographic is nothing to laugh at. They are powerful and very loyal. And while TVXQ, you know, of course they had younger fans. Of course they did. But it was that powerful housewife demographic that was at the core of their marketing and their image building in Japan. And by 2006, they had completely swapped the over-the-top visual K hairstyles for Bayoung Jun's signature glasses. Literally. I can post the pictures in the show notes. And so what about SM Entertainment? Okay. In May 2005, minus touch, Kim Kyung-wook was replaced as CEO of SM Entertainment by BOA's former manager, Kim Young-min. And so as we pick our story back up, SM is still dealing with Isuman's legal problems, as well as having just lost their lawsuit against the FTC for unfair contracts. They launched a new 12-member boy group, Super Junior, in November of 2005, that would try again with the member rotation concept and the China focus. Super Junior had a strong initial debut, even adding a 13th member in 2006, but would struggle greatly over the next couple of years, including a truly awful car accident in the spring of 2007 that sent a member into a coma. And then there was The Grace, who were launched as a girl group counterpart to TVXQ in 2005. The group never really caught on, through no fault of the members, who are all very talented, It was the wrong time, the wrong place, and the wrong branding to tie these women to TVXQ, upsetting devoted Cassiopeia, who, allegedly, formed uh, anti-fan clubs of the group. girl 
group Girls' Generation, who would debut in summer 2007, only to struggle to make an impression. Rock band Trax, who I mentioned at the end of the last episode, the band meant to tackle Japan's rock scene, was making no impact in Japan and would lose member No Minwoo in 2006. And Minwoo would get this. Later sue SM Entertainment for, among other things, pressuring entertainment industry people not to work with him after he quit tracks. Hmm. Funny. Okay. So meanwhile, as I mentioned in the last episode, through 2006 and 2007, SM was also in court with two former trainees who wanted to get out of unfair contracts. So yeah, a lot was writing on TVXQ breaking in Japan because TVXQ, along with BOA, were essentially supporting SM Entertainment as they struggled to build out their struggle bus of a roster and, you know, fight off uh, lawsuits in court. So, as we pick our story back up in 2006, just keep in mind that SM Entertainment is not yet out of their minus era, because SM Entertainment desperately needed the revenue TVXQ brought in. Again, you know, minus the cut to Isuman's like planning. The group was essentially juggling two full-time promotional schedules concurrently in Korea and Japan, plus additional promotions across the Pan-Asian region that all five members, Hiro Jae-jung, Shia Junsu, Miki Yu-chun, You Know You Know, and the baby Max Chungmin made it through this era alive is truly a miracle. One Japanese fan blog described their schedules during this era like this. If TVXQ had work in Japan on Friday and Sunday, SM would book them in Korea on Saturday. In one infamous week from June 16th to the 23rd, 2006, they traveled around the world in eight days. Korea to Thailand for the Channel V Awards on June 16th, then to Germany where they appeared for the World Cup on June 18th to cheer for Korea, as they had done uh, the 2006 World Cup image song. and then back to Korea, and then off to Saipan for shooting a music video, and then Nikata in Japan for a concert on the 23rd. That's eight days worth of schedule. Eight days. Eight. And then in the middle of everything of that week, on the 21st, they dropped another Japanese single. So Begin, the single released on the 21st, was written by Avex stalwart Jin Nakamura, who would go on to write award-winning songs for Exile and Juju, among others. And it's kind of this classic Avex R&B ballad, kind of song that plays well at karaoke. The exact kind of song that makes ladies burst into emotional tears during a concert. The video was done in sepia tones on a sound stage and prominently highlighted the members' glossy good looks and big eyes as they sang to camera.
became their best-selling single so far in Japan. So yeah, the housewives were definitely starting to pay attention. But then, during the Malaysia tour stop on July 14, 2006, held for 20,000 people with a newly debuted Super Junior opening for them, tragedy struck. Yuno had apparently dislocated his ankle but went on stage and danced anyway also while suffering from major throat pain. He was physically at a breaking point and would be out of commission for the next month and forced to rest, missing out on TVXQ's return to the A-Nation concert series, which ran from July through August, although he was participating in preparations for their third Korean album, which was happening concurrently to A-Nation. So I don't know how much the TVXQ members themselves would have taken in at the time, but watching the footage from A-Nation 2005 and then 2006 really shows their growth. Instead of just a small cluster of fans at the front of the stage, there's more of just an overall rumble of recognition when they come on. And Rising Sun gets people up and moving. The members may have been worked to the point of hospitalization, but it was getting results. Japanese single, Sky, the one with the video filmed in June in Saipan during the Hell Week, was released on August 16th and confirmed the A-Nation audience response. Sky cracked the top 10 of the Oricon chart, selling almost 30,000 copies, their best sales numbers in Japan to date. And almost more importantly, it was the tie-in song for a summer Baskin-Robbins ice cream commercial. Sky is a fun, up-tempo J-pop song written by another J-pop stalwart, H-Wonder, the man responsible for heaps of songs for artists, ranging from Kodakumi to Boa to Exile to V6 and Arashi. And what I think is worth highlighting about Sky is not just sales numbers, but to my ear, it's the perfect localized boy group track. <laughs>
EXQ, beginning to be better and better known by their Japanese name, Tohoshinki, now look and sound not just like a J-pop boy group, but like a good J-pop boy group. Their material was good. Their voices sound fantastic. And the members looked incredible. It had taken them nearly two years. Two members sidelined due to injury from overwork and an unceasing grind on both sides of the East Sea slash Sea of Japan to get to this point. But they had gotten to this point. So in the first episode, I discussed how the contracts for pop stars in Korea had originally been quite short, only three to five years. While the idea seems to have been to avoid being stuck with deadweight teen talents after a burst of initial popularity, what was starting to happen was that these agencies were seeing popular young artists reach the end of their contracts and deciding to leave the agency and go somewhere else for a better deal. In the case of SM Entertainment Xinhua, or in the case of DSP's Jexies, just flat out disbanding because they were tired of it. Or, in the case of HOT, the company stupidly disbanding them itself rather than renew their contracts, assuming that they were no longer worth the cost. Another problem with the shorter contracts is that to make any kind of progress in the massive Japanese pop market, which we've established was also extremely lucrative, Domestic Japanese record companies wanted at least seven years to be able to raise and sell the artists properly. SES had never stood a chance in Japan because of their short contract length, but BOA, who was still doing very well, and now TVXQ, proved that having that long ramp-up time could bring real results. And something else to think about as you begin to see how much work it took to try and break into domestic markets across Asia is that you can begin to understand why Isuman has kept returning to this idea of having localized subunits, something we see the company try with Super Junior, EXO, and now NCT, in order to try to spread the workload. Part of it is money and control, sure. But the other part has to be knowing the impossible burden for Korean idols trying to build on-the-ground local fandoms in every country in Asia at once. The local subunit concept is not inherently a bad one, although boy group fans have traditionally reacted very negatively to it, in part because boy group fans traditionally, although this is much less true today, are looking out for the best interests of the idol as individuals, not the best interests of the company. Local subunits would naturally make the company brand and the team brand bigger than the brands of the individual members, which actually is something that we have seen with NCT. But back to TVXQ. Their third Korean album, Ojugbanhap, was released on September 29th, 2006. The title track was a standard Yu Young Jin Cool Guy Zone SM production number, with the MV showcasing the group as Pan Asian superstars. But the song that I think is more significant off of this album is Balloons, which was a featured B-side. Balloons was a remake of a song from an 80s rock band, but arranged to sound extremely childlike and schmoopy.
Best as I can tell, the idea seems to have been a heavy-handed attempt to manufacture a broad public hit exactly like H.O.T.'s Candy, with a song that could reach both teens and their parents. The costuming was extremely juvenile, with lots of children's show primary colors and backing dancers dressed like fairy tale characters. And to my eyes anyway. TVXQ themselves appear dead-eyed and extremely over it as they prance around on stage with Snow White and Peter Pan. Of course, it didn't help that the group was exhausted, mentally and physically. You know had returned from his medical rest, only to be sent back to the hospital in an infamous incident that took place on October 14, 2006. An anti-fan disguised as staff had handed you know juice spiked with glue. He drank it and it almost killed him. Yet he was back at work just days later prancing around with Snow White and Peter Pan and trying to look cheerful. And that's just what was made public at the time. The stories from behind the scenes in this era, as TVXQ grimly marched through an impossible schedule, are horrifying. All five members have come out in recent years with stories from this time. You know suffered from PTSD from the spike juice incident. The constant travel between Seoul and Tokyo and beyond was extremely isolating, and all of the members have spoken about becoming depressed and very homesick. They were regularly worked to the point of physical collapse, too tired to stand, left, quote, dragging themselves on the floor like fish, unquote, after rehearsals. At one concert in 2007, Jejung infamously fell through a trap door that had been left open but returned to stage with his bruised ribs and kept performing. Fans noticed the members lip-syncing more frequently in concerts, voices shot after 30 or 40 straight days of performances. And then there was the constant presence of the sasang or stalker fans who would invade their rooms, wake them up in the middle of the night in their beds, call them incessantly, chase their vehicles, especially after Yuno's near-death incident in 2006, the members have to have been terrified that the next time they might not be so lucky to escape with their lives. And yet, a big part of selling an idol group, versus just a normal pop act, is that the members' own personalities and their interactions as a group were just as important, if not more so, than the songs they released. The pressure to be on, to provide fan service, and to keep up a good face, not just when on stage, but especially when the behind-the-scenes cameras were running, would have been immense. One of the big hooks of any idol group are the relationships between the members, and for TVXQ, that involved a crafting of a kayfabe family narrative, where Yuno was the father, Jaejung the mother, and the other three were the kids. This dynamic was explicitly marketed to fans and sent to the media as a promotional point. The Yuno-Jaejung ship, or pairing, was extremely popular, 
and the members would have been under incredible pressure to play along whether they were feeling it or not. Whatever real feelings it may or may not have been based on, the family narrative was another important part of the TVXQ package. And on top of that, the five members were always together. They lived together, worked together, traveled together, with essentially no break from each other. This kind of pressure cooker atmosphere can and will lead to intense interpersonal conflict. Small annoyances or fears or anxieties build and build and build, and you have nowhere to escape to because you have no time off, and home is the dorm where you live with these same guys and where fans will break in and climb into your bed and on top of you while you're trying to sleep. And all of this is why it's not surprising that the members began acting out. Jaejun was picked up for a DUI in 2006, and then he and Yuchung got into a car accident driving into a tree. In early January 2007, they said they were trying to flee from fans chasing them, which honestly, I, I don't, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say they weren't. So you can say that they were already adults at 18, 19, 20, 21, and made their own decisions. But the mental and physical exhaustion brought on by this constant level of work and travel would have made it very hard to sit and rationally and logically look at the deals that they had made. In a situation like this, ideally, a young adult would have a trusted authority figure, someone like a parent, who would be able to advise with the young person's best interests in mind. The members of TVXQ did not have that. Remember the member rotation crisis in episode 2? Well, it came out later in court that at that time, in November 2004, the members' parents all signed off on a contract that made sure TVXQ would remain just these five members, with no changes, for 13 years. Now, as 2006 turned to 2007, there were just 10 more years of this grind to go, give or take a couple years hiatus for mandatory military service. Something else, as 2006 turned to 2007, was that TVXQ, you know, they caught something of a lucky break in timing on the boy group scene in Japan. So, remember, Katun, the supergroup who had debuted in Tokyo Dome, right? Well, one of their members, Akanishi Jin, went on a sudden hiatus and then peaced out to Los Angeles to uh, study English, leaving something of a gap in the boy group marketplace. A not insignificant number of fans across Asia found themselves turning to TVXQ instead. Younger and hipper fans than the Bayong Jun aunties. Akanishi had been known for his vocals. Well, TVXQ were known for their vocals. Akanishi was known for his pretty face. Well, TVXQ had Jaejun known for his pretty face. Katun had the extremely popular fan pairing of Kamenashi and Akanishi. TVXQ had the extremely popular fan pairing of Jaejun and Yuno. Akanishi would eventually return to the fold before leaving again permanently in 2010, but Katun's momentum did take a real hit during his hiatus, and Katun versus Tohoshinki would become something of a rivalry among fans in Japan and across Asia during the next few years. So taking advantage of that boy group market gap, TVXQ would double down on the Japanese market in 2007 and take something of a hiatus from the Korean market. They kicked off the year with back-to-back -back singles in Japan, step-by-step, -step, 
and one of my personal favorites, the funky dance track, Choosy Lover. solid J-pop boy group tracks, and they both cracked the top 10 in the Oricon charts. This was followed by their second Japanese album, Five in the Black, which also hit the top 10 of the album charts for the week it was released, and a Japanese tour. As spring went into the summer, the momentum was building, and in between Japanese tour dates, they would release their 11th single, Loving You. Loving you. Loving You is a return to that kind of deep emotional ballad that TVXQ excels at. And it's another one written by a J-pop stalwart, in this case, Sakai Mikio. So Loving You sold nearly twice as much as their previous single, almost 50,000 copies. And it was enough to get them to number two on the Oricon chart for the week, their highest position yet. The final date on their concert tour was at that grand symbol of artistic success. The Budokan. The Beatles had played there, and now so had Toho Shinki. They'd, they'd made it. Between the Budokan concert and their first number two on the charts, the tide, it really felt like it was turning for Toho Shinki in Japan. And you could sense the excitement as soon as they stepped on stage at A Nation later that summer in 2007. It was a triumphant return for the former bathroom break group. Fans with cheerful pearl red balloons are liberally sprinkled through the large venue. 
And even the A Nation attendees who look like they're probably fans of one of the other acts, they're, they, you can see them like getting into the performance, waving their arms in time with the music and cheering. And the members of TVXQ look extremely happy. They had truly, really and truly earned this. also earned the chance to participate in the 2007 Soul Power Summit. That's S-O-U-L, as in the music, not soul like the city. A special soul music concert series that began in 2006 and ran through 2022. The group was able to showcase their musical skills by performing with a live band for the first time, as well as holding their own performing side by side with the respected Japanese vocal group Gospelers, which as a longtime J pop idol watcher, I can tell you that is something pretty special. two basic categories of J-pop idol, idols who can actually sing and idols who can't. And to be clear, there's no shame in being in the latter category because Japanese idols are not actually expected to be able to sing well. And you can hear me discuss this in various other episodes. But through their hard work, Toho Shinki were building their brand as singing entertainers who could actually sing. They were even billed as a Kodasu group or singing group rather than an idol group. And they were often asked to sing a cappella live on variety shows, which they would do. And their mics were on. Mm. 
ここまでですいやすごいThere was a huge promotional push for the next Japanese single, which came out on August 1st, 2007. A triple A side featuring the peppy Summer Dream, Song for You, and an ending theme song ballad called Love in the Ice. And there were multiple versions of the CD, brand tie ups, special event raffles, and lots of marketing. They sold almost 125,000 copies and made it to number one on the daily singles chart. Unfortunately, they were only number two in the Oricon weekly chart behind another boy group, temporary unit Heisei Seven from Johnny's and Associates, who had conveniently sold just a couple more thousand copies of their song Heisei to tip them into the number one slot for the week. <laughs> TVXQ had now reached the level where they could challenge the Johnnies and Associates group. Well, that meant something big. And TVXQ in this era were charming. They'd learned enough Japanese by this point in mid 2007 to be able to banter on television variety shows, an important part of reaching mainstream Japanese listeners outside of the core fandom. So I'm going to play an example here of the group interacting with popular comedy duo. Downtown on the music show Hey 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 on August 6, 2007. So, this is Junsu explaining that he's been inventing new dad jokes. So, I'm going to be able to do it. I'm going to be able to do it. I'm going to be able to do it. And I cannot overstate the importance for idols of this kind of interaction with comedians and other mainstream talents, both in Korea and Japan. The idols who managed to get a foothold in the world of variety show programming, where they are most likely to reach normie entertainment consumers, they tend to have the longest and most successful careers. As 2007 closes out, TVXQ would also appear in a collaboration with fellow AVEX artists and one of the three queens, Koda Kumi, for a tie up song for the release of the movie Resident Evil 3. <laughs>
which led to their very first appearance on influential Japanese music shows, Music Station, and then also Utaban. They would also make a special appearance at Kotakumi's Tokyo Dome concert. This was more than Hallyu. This was actual, real, mainstream popularity in Japan. comment on the Udaban appearance stands out in retrospect. Jung is demonstrating his ability to eat spicy foods by eating plain rice with hot mustard, which he explains is something that he eats even at home. Kotakumi is shocked. Are you broke or something? It was a throwaway joke, but it carried a deep sting of truth. TVXQ was generating revenue, but how much of that money was actually getting to the men working themselves to exhaustion? AVIX had to have their cut, as did SM Japan and SM Entertainment in Korea, and don't forget Isuman's shell company, like planning, taking a nice cut of everything coming into Korea. Were the men of TVXQ broke? As we enter 2008 and build to the crucial year of 2009, the question of money, but also of the members' own individual desires, and not to mention the split between the competing interests of AVEX in Japan and SM Entertainment outside of Japan, would reach a boiling point. How long could these men function as essentially two separate groups, both with full-time promotional schedules, without collapsing completely? TVXQ began 2008 with another Japanese single, Purple Line, released in January. It would become their first number one single on Japan's Oricon chart, making TVXQ the first K-pop boy group to get a number one song in Japan. It's not their strongest single, musically, but it's a fun song that kind of leans into a Timbaland-esque R&B sound that was popular at the time. But I think what's worth paying attention to, more than the charting or the slick car commercial style MV, are the credits on the song, which was written by Yu Young Jin. 
enlists Isuman as the producer. Now, it's possible Isuman himself actively produced this particular Japanese song from TVXQ, but it's also possible that Isuman was being given a vanity credit in order to get a direct cut of the money TVXQ was earning in Japan. In Purple Line, having those writing credits from SM music director Yu Young Jin instead of one of AVEX's stable of hitmakers certainly does make it seem like SM Entertainment was getting frustrated watching their group earn money across the EC slash of Japan. Money that they, and like planning, weren't necessarily getting the full cut of what they felt they deserved. So the first part of 2008 sees TVXQ building on their Japanese success of 2007. They have a bigger album, T, a bigger tour. They're tapped to do a theme song for a bigger drama, the Bayoung Jun star, The Legend. And their showing at A Nation is even bigger and better. That first number one is followed by three more number ones in 2008, setting a new record for Korean boy groups in Japan. And importantly, early 2008 is also when we begin to see the members begin the slow process of establishing solo brand images. Purple Line, followed by a series of Japanese singles that featured just one member each, released one per week. It's a scenario that appears to be designed to measure who the most popular members are. And judging by sales alone, that would be Jejung by a mile, followed by Yuchun and Junsu, with Changmin and then Yunho trailing way behind. As summer turned to fall, TVXQ finally returned to Korea to focus on preparations for their fourth Korean album, Merotic, which was released on September 26, 2008. Having been just over a year and a half since their last Korean promotions, fans were ready and waiting to showcase their collective power. Over 300,000 pre-orders were reported, and SM apparently had to delay the release by two days because they were unable to keep up with demand. The album, with three versions, would go on to sell over half a million copies, something nobody had managed to do in Korea since Soteji in 2004. It's actually kind of ominous in retrospect. Those fan-power-driven album sales can be seen as the opening salvo in what would later, into the 2010s and especially into the 2020s, become an overheated and increasingly barren wastelands of fans of bulk-buying albums. But back in 2008, these big numbers were still very novel and kind of thrilling.
Yuri's album sales showed a level of fan club size and coordination that hadn't really been seen since the days of H.O.T. and Jexies. As with all giant sales metrics in contemporary times, the sales themselves represent less a measure of general popularity than a measure of the size and power of the fandom. And you had better believe SM Entertainment, as well as all of the other K-pop idol companies, were paying attention. And that title song was a genuine hit. For a group whose last domestic work had been the utterly banal remake of Balloons, seeing the grown and sexy men striding across the stage must have been shocking. One cannot imagine the TVXQ of 2006 being slapped with a 19 plus sticker. And Marotic, the song, became legendary. To this day, almost 15 years later, idols are still imitating Changmin's big belting note. TVXQ would also cement their legend status by closing out the year with their very first invitation to Japan's prestigious Kohaku Utsugasen, the big New Year's Eve concert that plays on NHK and which, at the time, got insane ratings of something like over half the country. It was a huge honor, especially considering that they were only one of four boy groups invited that year. SMAP and Tokyo, both from Johnny's Associates, and Exile also from AVEX, were the other three. I don't think it's unreasonable to speculate that if the events of 2009 had not played out the way that they did, Toho Shinki had a really good chance at becoming the next most popular boy group in Japan after SMAP. Despite the celebratory atmosphere at the end of the year, there were already signs of trouble to come. For one thing, the 2008 financial crisis had hit Korea. Stock markets tanked, foreign capital fled, and the Korean banking system was in crisis. Exports of Korean goods slowed to a trickle. Just as the members of TVXQ were looking to stretch their wings, the financial climate was like, no, let's hunker down and keep doing what we're doing. Jae Jung had announced a film role in September 2008, the first solo work from any TVXQ member. The film was a joint Japanese-Korean production with Jae Jung specifically requested by popular scriptwriter Kitagawa Eriko, she did Long Vacation, um, and so on, which was a huge honor for any idol. But SM Entertainment's position in November 2008 
was uh, TVXQ prioritizes group activities. If SM Entertainment had been considering solo activities for the member, especially with the successful debut of the TVXQ-esque boy group Shiny in May 2008, it's possible that those plans were now in jeopardy thanks to the global economic crisis. Meanwhile, in interviews about Merotic, the members themselves appeared divided when faced with the question of SMP or SM production, a style that had a somewhat negative connotation in Korea thanks to the lingering bias against singing entertainers. Jinsu wanted to clarify that they weren't a group that only did SMP, but rather a group that could do SMP among other styles. Meanwhile, Yuno stepped up to play the role of the company man and emphasized that their biggest successes had been SMP, and he was proud to have introduced SMP to fans in places like China and Thailand. And on top of everything else, while TVXQ were off building a solid base of support in Japan, the pop landscape in Korea was quickly beginning to change. Between the beginning of 2004, when TVXQ debuted, and the end of 2008, K-pop had gone from something unseemly and associated with drugs and shady backroom deals that no respectable person would let their children near, to SM Entertainment CEO Kim Young-min getting a presidential commendation for what he accomplished in spreading the Korean wave abroad with BOA and TVXQ. And TVXQ's boosted image, an image that now went beyond this teenage hysteria to suave and sophisticated Asian superstars, helped kicked off a new wave of idol groups. Remember how I said in 2003 it was solo stars like Seven and Rain who ruled the scene? Well, that was changing and changing fast. Even that small independent company I mentioned earlier in the episode, YG Entertainment, had now gotten into the idol group business. In 2006, they had debuted a hip-hop-themed idol group called Big Bang, who had a massive breakout hit in August 2008 with Haru Haru. That hit injected new life into the emerging K-pop scene as the industry gleefully turned TVXQ versus Big Bang into the newest Korean pop royalty rivalry, even having Big Bang's Taeyang face off against Junsu in a piano battle at the SBS Gaio Daejun on December 29, 2008. There had not been this much excitement around a teen pop rivalry since HOT versus Jexies almost a decade ago. Most importantly, with all of the money now sloshing around this new K-pop scene, even with the financial downturn, the big corporations were really starting to pay attention. That small independent company, YG Entertainment with the new hit group, while Mnet and their parent company, CJENM, swooped in with an offer they could not refuse. The same went for SK Telecom and JYP Entertainment. Allegedly, Mnet even tried to force SM into a deal, but it would take another 15 years before they'd finally gain control 
of the company. Little by little, the K-pop idol scene that we know today, with some critical support from the Korean government from the big chaebol companies, was beginning to take shape. And that shape was one that could drive major fan spending, the idol group. First TVXQ, then Super Junior in 2005, the number of idol groups appearing on Korean music shows gradually began to increase, and the number of normie acts began to decrease. Between 2006 and 2009, award shows went from showcasing acts like R&B vocal group SG Wannabe and soft rock band Buzz to wall-to-wall singing entertainers. Shiny, 21, After School, FX, 2PM, Beast. But at least for now, there is only one group at the very top. TVXQ. So let's close out part three with a song from T, the third Japanese album released in January 2008. This is Clap, written by Figgy Bostrom, who is one of my favorite J-pop songwriters. And yeah, stay tuned for episode four.